Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for Minnesota baseball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone! Touch them all, Joe Mauer! And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful game. Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Normally, you and I would both be voices of reason. We would both be preaching things like small sample size, patience, step away from the panic button. There's still five and a half months left. I'm, I'm not bringing that. Yeah. Calm, level-headed conversation well, to this table. And I will say too that as much as, as much as I think this beginning stretch of the 2016 season is significantly better baseball than the Twins stumbled off to in the 2015 season, uh, the, the Twins are playing better right now than they were at that time last year. That's almost irrelevant to me. So I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say things are rosy and everything's hunky dory because they're not. Um, they've dug themselves a considerable hole. But I also don't think, like, the, the fact that we're sort of taking this as, well, all right, this season's over. When do the Vikings report to Mankato? If you want to think that that's okay, I'm not pleading people to follow the Twins or to even follow baseball for the summer. But to say that the summer's over now, I think, is be overstating it. Well, am I wrong? And say, I believe I saw this right. I. I lost track after the 0-5 numbers came out. I saw 0-5, mm-hmm. three 0-5 teams in baseball history have made the playoffs. The 1995 Reds, the 1974 Pirates, and the 2011 Rays. Okay. I don't think any at 0-7. There I'm are right. zero teams, according to, uh, I think it's uh, Elias or one of those agencies, uh, zero 0-7 teams have made the postseason, two Owen seven teams have clawed their way back to a 500 or better record by the end of wow. the season. And so I get that it's different now because you do have the added wild card team. Five teams make the playoffs. Sure. And so maybe for 80 of those years, it really did take 93 wins to win yeah. the Western uh, you know, pennant or whatever. Last year, the Astros got to the postseason with 86 wins. You know, the second wild card has changed the math a little bit. Yeah. Put it this way. When... For your home opener, when you're doing pregame introductions, 25 players, a bunch of coaches, when your bullpen coach gets the loudest ovation before the game starts, it's probably not a good omen. Eddie, Eddie. I mean, I know we all love everyday Eddie and all. They really love him at Target Field. My second favorite thing was, and he's he's hitting like 400. He might have dropped off. I can't remember. Joe Maurer. But... Despite 0-6, it's a packed house. You got 40,000 people. Everyone's playing hooky on Monday. You got an extra bar or two that didn't exist last year. And so, yeah, it's cold, but people are excited. Who cares? 0-6, whatever. All right, now you're back home. 
Let's do this. Brian Dozier rips, laces one to left field to start the bottom of the first inning. Here we go. All right. Now we're going to start the season. Here we go. All right. Joe Maurer off to a hot start. 400 batting average to start the season. All right. Dozier's on pace. Here we go. Yeah. All right. I'm hanging out in catch. Yeah. The new bar. <laughs> it's called catch, right? Catch. I don't know. Yeah. I got hanging out out here. Joe Maurer. Four, six, three. Yeah. Not inning ending, but basically like booed off the field into the dugout. Not a very timely double play and a very symbolic double play. Then, all right, here we go. We're gonna let's let's gather ourselves again here. Coming out of the gate, wah wah. Yeah. The horse race begins. The trumpet sounds, and your horse breaks both front legs oh, on the way out of the gate. Like, that's what's happening no, here. No, I will use a different analogy because this is a podcast in which we frequently deviate into analogies. It's like the, you know, the bugle does his call. Blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance. The horse race getting there. All the jockeys are lined up. They're all in the starting gate. The gun fires. The gates open. The bell's ringing, and the rabbit shoots down. Or I don't think that would they be for a greyhound. Yeah, race. greyhounds. Yeah, uh, horses don't chase rabbits. No, I don't. I, I don't chase rabbits. I don't do ponies, so it's hard for me to <laughs> cross over these metaphors. But the, all the horses are running, and the twins' gate failed to open. The twins is still shut, and the the colt is still in there, going stir crazy well, and ready to run. They're not allowed to win a game. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying they're not allowed to win a game. They're not even allowed to start the season. They had their finger on the gate button. They could have pushed it open, and they didn't. Uh, that's maybe the more apropos metaphor, but they're, uh, I don't think their legs are broken. I think, I think there's a, still a chance that they're competitive this season, even in a central that should be fairly interesting. Um, I just think they've got a lot of ground to make up. Well, the, let's, let's go into this part of it. I, could they win three or four in a row? And then all of a sudden you're back to, you know, striking distance of 500. Of course, obviously, but now this is the, the difference between, Losing seven games in June or May or sometime midseason and losing them now. Presumably, if you do lose seven games in a row in June or July or pick your middle of the of the season stretch, number one, it's never good to lose seven games in a row. So for anyone saying, oh, well, if you would, if this would have happened in May, no, anytime you lose seven games yeah. in a row, it's not good. Right. And it, Especially severely... if it's just before the trade deadline and the right. general manager's hovering over the button, should I trade and yeah. sell everything off or should I trade and try and gather some assets for a stretch run? You lose seven in a row on July 15th right after the All-Star break till July 25th. All right, we're sellers. Goodbye. See you in Fort Myers. Correct. And and secondly, if you are in a position to where you can lose seven games in a row in June or July, and it's not a death knell to your season, it's because you've built up equity by already being like eight <laughs> games over 500. Yeah. And so what you've done now is if you want to make the playoffs, let's just say, let's just put, let's make it a nice round number, 90 wins. Now what you're looking at, instead of 90 and 72, okay, 18 games over, that's doable. Now it's 25 games over in right. a smaller window to do it. Yeah. So it's very understandable why no 0-7 team has ever made the playoffs and why only a couple have ever finished above 500. Generally, if you start 0-7, whatever the reason is, it's because you're not very good. Now the DNA of this team could change as Buxton figures it out. Sano comes around again in his sophomore season. But there's a lot of ifs and hoping to be done here for this team just to get back to relevancy in 2016.
and I picked him to win 90 on the radio, by the way. So I am as big. I went from 20-win window with you on this podcast to being pressured into picking one number, and I said, damn it, 90. Screw it. Yeah, so I'm attached to that number for the rest of the season with all the other people who predicted playoffs. We can get to those ifs and those hopes and those aspirations in a quick second, but I have a question for you, and it's a yes or no, but I will allow you to expound if you feel it's necessary. Do you think there's a chance the Twins are playing in the postseason this year? <laughs> I know that you would say there's still a non-zero chance they're yeah. playing in the postseason. Yeah, I didn't ask what I would say. I'm curious your thoughts. Um, I never – it's it's not possible to just completely write someone off after seven games. It looks horribly grim right now if your goal is playoffs. If your goal is develop some key players and – maybe make a surge in the second half and crescendo into 2017 or something, then, yeah, I think that's very feasible. There is a greater than 0% chance that they make the playoffs at this point. I'm not going to say zero. It's never happened before, but there's a new playoff format as of a couple years ago, and so I think there's going to be teams that start in a hole, and this this team had written all over it better in the second half than in the first half. Sure. With the possibility of Jose Barrios being part of your rotation, the possibility of Byron Buxton needing until May or June to really feel comfortable at the plate. So the possibility of a trade if you're in a, in a spot to deal some prospects for a player. Mm-hmm. I think all along this team was always destined to be better or have a, a good chance to be better in the second half than the first half. But you can't soil yourself for right. three months in the first half or go 0-7. you got to give yourself a shot in the second half. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree with uh, everything you're saying there. Um, it's it's funny. I wrote it's so, it was sort of tongue in cheek um, in my five thoughts column after Monday's game that oh you know oh my gosh all right oh and seven the sky is falling it's the home opener and fans are booing chaos bedlam this is mayhem this could not have started any worse and it couldn't I mean record wise the Twins couldn't have been worse that's not breaking any news to you that saying going oh and seven in your first seven games is as bad as it can get. But I wrote sort of tongue-in-cheek at the end of, I think it was my first thought in the column, said that you know no team has gone 0-7 to start the year and then made the postseason. So what that means is that the Twins have a tremendous opportunity in front of them to become the first team in MLB history to lose seven games and play in the postseason. I think that's likely. No, probably not. But... I'm not writing this team off yet. They're certainly better than 0-7 would indicate. Um, 3-4 and 4 would be a bad start, too, and we'd feel vastly different about this thing. Put, put, to put the numbers in perspective, and I know you know this, but I was just you know, crunching the math in my head. Most of our listeners know this, too. If baseball were the NFL, you're talking a 16-game schedule to determine your fate. Do you go to the playoffs or not? The Twins are trailing after the third quarter of their first game right now. So they've dug a big hole in it. But to the point where you can't win your first game and might even have gotten your quarterback's ACL torn. Boy, I don't see it that way. But but then why is it that – but see, that's that comparison isn't apples to apples because you can definitely be trailing. Mm-hmm. There's been teams that have gotten smoked in their first game, so mm-hmm. their first 0-16 there's yeah. been teams in the NFL that have gone 0 and 0 and 16 in baseball terms. Sure. So you start the season, you still have 146 games left. Yep. Yep. Um, 
But in the NFL, it's pretty easy still to lose your first game and make the playoffs. The Vikings Correct. went 11-5 and after losing their first Correct. game. Correct. So it's so not... in baseball, starting 0-7, I think the reason starting 0-7 is more indicative of who you are as a team than being down or losing your first game in the NFL. Yeah, I agree. But I don't think that this team is the worst team in baseball, right? I mean, and I think we'd agree on that. I think they are not even playing like it necessarily. I think... I think that the Twins are significantly better than their record shows, and I think the only evidence you'd have to point to is the fact that they've lost. Uh, I'm pulling these numbers from my head, but I think through the first seven games, I think it's they've lost two two-run games and three one-run games. Sure, if I'm not but, mistaken. But the average run, if you, but then again, the worst teams in baseball. Mm-hmm. Let's say the worst teams in baseball that have still, a, a minus one fifty right. run differential. Yeah. Am I right that that? What's my math on that? That they would be outscored on average by a run per game. Right, so it's to, to be losing close games to me doesn't mean oh better things are on the horizon always. Right. It means well maybe your bullpen is blowing close games or maybe you're not it good is. enough to score five runs a game. They aren't. It would give you the cushion to right. not lose one run game. Right, all of those things are true. Uh, and, and I think though the only evidence you have to point to is that the only game that they've been embarrassed in was that Saturday game when Eduardo Escobar boots two balls and like just it di- it didn't go well for him. Put it this way. You remember last year when we'd be talking about uh, you could tell if the Twins were winning or losing a game just by looking at the box score, and you didn't have to look at the score. You just have to see whether Tim Stauffer pitched. <laughs> and it became kind of a running joke. He but didn't it, blow any games. He was always in the games that were already blown. Exactly. It wasn't necessarily that, oh, man, you know, he came in in a, a big spot, and if he pitched, he must have soiled himself. No, it's the Twins did not want to use him because – Games that were still winnable did not deserve to be blown by putting Tim Stauffer in the game. I wonder if Michael Tonkin will be that guy this year. You can look at the bullpen chart and say, well, Tonkin pitched. The Twins did not win. And you can say that for every game of this year so far, but you can say that with every reliever so far, uh, including Glenn Perkins, Trevor May, Kevin Jepsen, the three supposed sure things in the Twins bullpen that we sort of harped on all winter. Actually, there's a million things I want to – poke holes in and criticize you before this is over for a million so well we're gonna then we're gonna just do this for like 48 straight hours we're gonna (laughs) i think we should change the name of the podcast we're we're gonna try to touch most of them because there's a certain (laughs) point where just like an exhaustive list touch them all is a lie this for this episode (laughs) sorry we're not gonna touch all the reasons why this team is 0-7 where phil mackey and Derek wetmore attend to touch most of them i'm gonna give you three positives right now i'm gonna come to your side right now and be a little at least a little less doom and gloom all right and then i'm gonna rip everyone else out of that. <laughs> okay. Number one, despite the aforementioned 4-6-3, Joe Maurer's off to a good start. He's hitting everything hard right now. He's making good contact. I like the way he's swinging. He looks like he's got a great command of the plate and the strike zone. Um, I believe he's walked more than he's struck out to this point, and it's only been seven games. But he is the only Twins hitter to do that, I think. He's getting on base, so he's doing everything that you would hope that he'd be doing in that number two spot. And two relievers, one through a wild pitch, blew the game against Kansas City on Sunday. But overall, Trevor May and Ryan Presley, I like their stuff. They're both throwing mid-90s, movement, breaking balls, swings and misses. Trevor May, I think, has like 10 strikeouts in five and a third or five and almost two strikeouts per inning at this point. Yeah, I don't know what his rate is, but he's been good. So I, I like Presley and May, now Perkins, velocity down. Jepson. So this is where I'm going to start. This. The, the, these Wait, are the what things. were your three? Oh, your your third was Presley. Presley. Oh, okay. May. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah. 
Well, I'm not lumping those guys. And together. Trevor May is a half of a positive for me because you can't blow a game in the first week of the season and after one it's week true. say you're great. I mean, his. What I will say is that Trevor May's process is good. He's a smart pitcher. He's got good pitches. He's got four pitches. I still see him as a long-term starter. Um, but with that being said. You know, Glenn Perkins is a good pitcher too, and he blew a game this week, so he hasn't had a good first week. Yeah, That's I your job the, the is to get those for outs. Error right now for Perkins seems so thin because yeah. he's not throwing 96 anymore. Right, it's 92 you know? with the big wipeout slider, and that's totally different. And the wipeout slider is is about 80 to 81 now instead of 84, and and those things do matter. You wonder, oh, okay, it's only three miles an hour difference. Go ask, go ask 35 year old relievers who've lost two or three miles an hour off their fastball. We're looking for a job right now. And the Twins are looking, by the way, so they will sign well, those guys true, this yeah. winter. You wonder, like, why Why is that guy unemployed right now? Well, it's because he lost three miles an hour off his fastball yeah. and his slider doesn't bite quite as much as it did sure. three years ago. Well, but don't worry because the Twins will still give him a chance in sprint training. <laughs> Come to the dark side. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting colored a little bit by your uh, negativity in this but, room. But this is where I'm a fraud here because the checklist I'm about to give you, these are things the Twins went into the season hoping – would happen, hoping they could check these boxes and they would be positives and they could go on and compete for a playoff spot or the division. And I looked at the checklist and I thought, I think it's pretty likely that most of these things are going to happen too. Well, the first week, we'll see what happens. You know, all of these things could change after the home stands over. But as we stand right now, go ahead. I want you to get to your list, but I have two more positives just to round it out and make it five. Entering the home stand. So the first six games of the season, Eduardo Nunez was hitting 800. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. You'll take that. You only had one RBI, though. That's okay. If you that's fine. If you bat 800, you need to drive in more runs. Yeah, but I think if you bat 800 over the course of the season, eventually you're going to drive in your fair share of He's runs. He's on pace. No, I think he popped out or something. He's on pace he to bat out. 600. It, which, is, which would be still pretty good. You majorly I think right. You'd, I think you'd take that. Another positive that no one's talking about right now because the Twins' offense can't do anything. Another positive is their starting pitching's been really good. Ricky Nolasco was great. Uh, I thought he was going to stop their streak. Kyle Gibson was uh, okay in the home opener, but generally speaking, their starting pitching has been as advertised. Six innings, maybe seven, throw in a handful of strikeouts, don't walk too many guys. No crooked numbers. Mm -hmm. Keep your team, and I hate this cliche, but in this case it applies. Keep your team in games. The starting pitchers have done that, with the only exception being Irvin Santana when he got rained out after that yeah. um, confusing, uh, head-scratching rain delay in Baltimore. Otherwise, the starting pitchers have been good. I think that's the biggest signal you can look to say, eh, the Twins might be able to straighten this out a little bit. So there's five positives, and I want your list of Eh, hopes that the Twins had this winter that have just not come to Another fruition. positive, they had today off. Yeah, right. They didn't lose so on they Tuesday. They did not lose today. They did not lose on the day Very we good. record this podcast. They've been playing for a week and a half and haven't won yet, but they didn't lose today. So this is the checklist of things the Twins were hoping to have happen sure. for them to take a step forward. They were hoping Byron Buxton would click and figure things out at the plate and become more than just a good defensive center fielder. Again, it's been 20 at-bats so far, but he's swinging and missing at everything. It's been terrible. And he's still, whatever he was doing from a patient standpoint in spring training, he can't identify low and away sliders, breaking balls. He's flailing. He doesn't have an approach. Number two, they were hoping Miguel Sano would look comfortable in right field and be comfortable at the plate. He looks all out of sorts at the plate, taking fastballs for strike threes. Just He just looks off at the plate. 
He's not squaring a lot of balls up right now. He's hit a couple. He hit the line drive to center field against the White Sox, but for the most part, or it was to left field. It was Melky Cabrera who went down on that one. So he's just he he just looks off. They're challenging him with high fastballs. He's just he's he's not getting ahead and counts as often. How's he been in the field, Phil? Atrocious. Yeah, it's been pretty bad. His range is awful. Um, I sound like Doogie right now. I talked to a high-level twin source. You know, it's just um, you're trying to hide him in right field, hoping he can mash. And when he doesn't mash, it's more magnified when he's not good in right field. Then when he does those things, when he chases a ball, pursues it to the warning track, and sort of half reaches out his glove as the ball bounces and hits the wall and goes for a double, or throws to the wrong base, or throws through a cutoff man because he thinks he can throw out a guy at third and the trail runner advances to second. Yes. These are little things that... Might not matter on a specific play, but if you make a hundred of those plays over the course of a season, you've very, very legitimately cost your team runs and, by extension, wins. Um, the process so far for Miguel Sano and right field, yes. not good. They went into the season hoping Byung-Ho Park could hit a fly ball to center field deep enough to score guys from third once in a while, make contact, mm-hmm. carry over what he did in spring training and at least do it to some degree in the big leagues. Mm -hmm. Again, only seven games. You're facing some good pitchers early on here. I totally get it, but Byung-Ho Park has looked completely uncomfortable and overmatched at the plate. He's leading the team in strikeouts. It hasn't been good. Mm -hmm. It's been super ugly. Somebody asked why he got pinch hit the other day, and Eduardo Nunez came to the plate. Look no further than what I said a minute ago. Eduardo Nunez was hitting 800. He pinch hit him for everybody. Uh, But uh, in all seriousness, that's... Byung-Ho Park, and I don't know if people are going to take my word for this or not. That's certainly you're right, but he looked better than this in Fort Myers. I was down there for a month, and I said, okay, there's still some question marks, but you know he's not going to be embarrassing. You know it's not going to be a disaster of a signing. There's something there. There's some talent. Um, There's bat speed. He's able to hit when he makes contact. The ball flies. It's been bad. So far, and it's been consider small sample size, but it's been considerably worse than I would have expected after having observed him in Fort Myers. I think he turns the corner at some point, but if it keeps trending in this direction, you might be looking at some minor league time I mean, for it. The first week of the season, if you get ahead one and two, or even even the count at two and two, or God forbid, zero oh and two, if you throw a breaking ball that starts at the thighs and breaks down to the dirt, or or do something that you can throw below the knees. It's either Byung-Ho Park or Byron Buxton or Eddie Rosario. The mm-hmm. at-bat's over. Yeah. The at-bat is over in the first week of the season. That's it. And the last thing the Twins are hoping for, but it's the it's the thing we've been harping on for months, and so far this unit has blown games for them. The bullpen, they were hoping, without any big additions, they were hoping the bullpen would just magically improve upon being one of the worst in baseball last year. Now, it was better down the stretch, and Jepsen had a career stretch run there. But for the most part, it was one of the five or ten worst bullpens in all of baseball. Yeah. They allowed the most contact. So I, I do like that Presley and May are getting swings and misses. But, again, Casey Fiend looks completely unusable. Michael Tonkin, you're just kind of hiding and waiting for spots to put him in. That, he's, that Either you're up by five or down by five. Mm-hmm. And like we said, Glenn Perkins' velocity is not there. Kevin Jepsen probably not going to repeat a career year last year. And this is the collection right now. Until yeah. further notice, this is the collection. Fernando Abad's the guy charged with getting Mike Moustakis and Eric Hosmer out in key late-in-game spots with runners on. 
That's not an ideal situation. Yeah. If that was an ideal situation, 29 other teams would have considered offering him a major league deal. Yeah. Zero yeah. of them did. By the way, did you see, I think it was, who did he walk? He walked the lefty. It was, it was either one, of, it might have been Hosmer. Um, he walked on four or five pitches, the lefty he was brought into face, and then got Kendry's Morales out, kept him in batting right-handed. Right. Yeah. So he got him to fly out or something. It might have been a strikeout, but... It's like here we go. You're facing one of the right. one of the big spots here that you're brought into face against a tough middle of the order lefty hitter, and you walk him on four or five pitches to get to the right-handed batter. Oh my god! So we spent, admittedly, too much time talking about the bullpen this winter. It was a fringe part of a roster that we got to talk about because while everything else is basically decided and this team should be competitive, therefore you can begin to look at the roster fringes and say. All right, now this is where you need to improve. Improve on the margins. And the Twins didn't even, like, the the Twins kind of scoffed at the idea that their margins needed improvement. And I don't get that. I don't get the – arrogance is probably the wrong word, but the, like, so – there's this assuredness that this bullpen is ready to go and it's fully loaded and this is as good as we can do. That's how they felt last year, too. Well, yeah. I mean, they had a misevaluation of Tim Stauffer, which was their first – issue and secondarily i don't think anybody expected perkins to break down in that way but you look at the holes in the bullpen last year they were very real it's not just our perception that bullpen is not on par with the baltimore orioles or the boston red sox or the new york yankees or the kansas city royals you don't have to look far to find much better bullpens and i'll argue Anyone who says that the bullpen is their biggest problem this week, it's not. It's their offense. Yeah, they, can't but when, with, can't, they can't hit with runners in the scoring position yeah, either. For their first, Add for, that to the pile. It was through their first four games they had scored nine runs and people were ready to blow up the bullpen. Now, I don't agree with that because if you're talking about scoring 2.25 runs per game, that's not going to do it with Baltimore's bullpen. That's not going to do it with the Yankees' bullpen. You need to score more than you do. You have, and, and I think the offense will come around. I do think they'll score more runs than they're scoring right now. But when you're not scoring runs, it shines a spotlight on a perceived weakness, and right now that weakness is the bullpen. And just coincidentally or because it's actually that bad, the bullpen has caved in the first week of the season, and it's made things look much, much worse for the Twins so far. Man. Yeah, how's that for a 25-minute burial of an 0-7 team? Well, I right. said, we I gave said, you a little positivity in there, didn't we? I said at the beginning, I, I still <laughs> think there's a non-zero chance. They deserve every to... shred of this right now, though. They just oh, do. This isn't like no bad question. luck or gosh, golly, gee, you know, we were getting screwed over by umpires or something. It's just... Well, we're in a weird spot here because you have a radio show. I do a podcast. I, I cover the team for the website, and people tend to think, you know, oh, you're protecting the team. Like We're pretty negative about this team most of the winter while fairly pointing out the positives of they might have got a great gamble um, bargain on Byung-Ho Park. Miguel Sano could be a future star. Byron Buxton, there's a podcast, I think you mentioned Byron Buxton as a potential eight-win player. And right now he's not any semblance of that. He still has the future possibility to be that. But it's weird. I'll sometimes hear feedback on whether it's the podcast or columns on the website or just generally speaking my my uh, demeanor on Twitter that, oh, you're just protecting the Twins. Or the flip side of that, man, you hate the Twins. You're just constantly all good. No, no, no. My goal here in this podcast, in my columns, on Twitter, is to represent the picture as fairly as I possibly can without sort of putting on this veil of, well, this is what the Twins would like you to believe. We're Twins auditors on this show. Boom. 
I love that. That's what we are. We are auditing the Minnesota Twins. And, in fact, right now the Twins are about two weeks late on their tax return. Right. <laughs> and they're not answering their phone. And so we've showed up Things with ain't some brass good. knuckles. Yeah. <laughs> Time to pay the Piper, Twins. Yeah. Well, you know, Michael Tonkin was in his show me something spring, and he showed you something by giving up, what was it, nine runs and he seven innings. He showed you that he doesn't belong on the roster. Now, I will say, in Michael Tonkin's defense, and I'm someone who's defended him a lot the past two seasons, great minor league numbers, and you see the stuff and you wonder, why doesn't this translate? Why isn't it working in the majors? But he had an outing the other day in Kansas City that it was just pretty obvious. If you're watching the game and you watch where the catcher sets up, where I think it was John Ryan Murphy was in the game at this time, where he sets his glove versus where he catches it when Michael Tonkin throws it, Tonkin had no idea on the vast majority of his pitches where they were going. And I'm not saying that you should draw conclusions based on one inning of a middle reliever. Um but I look at that and I think, man, he was gifted a spot on this roster, and he's not really pulling his weight. He's just one example, of course. Byron Buxton also not pulling his weight. Miguel Sano not pulling his weight. You go down the That's list. a lot of weight to pull, too. No, nobody is. I see what you did there. Yeah. You wonder why you can't catch a fly ball in the corner. Basically, nobody on this roster, the starting staff notwithstanding, and Joe Maurer notwithstanding, is pulling his weight. So it's a little unfair to just sort of heap criticism on one player or another player um but things are not going well for the twins right now some of them were predictable some of them are bad luck but you're behind the eight ball now you've got to play a pretty good game of billiards to get yourself out of this the rest of the way i want to bring up and actually defend byron buxton for a second here because i've gotten a few emails on this and some tweets that you touted him and you in the media as the next hall of famer and you said he was going to be this and that and MVP caliber talent. Have any of your readers called him Byron Buston yet? No. I have yours. I had someone last year yeah. tell me after it was like 50 plate appearances um, why I was refusing to bring the name Byron Buston yeah. to the mainstream. I'm still in Buxton's corner. Um, well, he has 170 Career major league play. I don't appearances. know the number is off. The, it's, it's not two hundred. It's fewer than that because he had one hundred twenty nine at bats last year. So it's it's like let's call it one fifty. Sure. So he's come up and he's twenty one years old when he gets called up. What is he twenty two? Twenty two now. He turned twenty two in December. So it's not like so he just turned twenty two years right. old. And this is where it's going to be tough because they did burn. We talked about this. They burned an option on him last sure year, did. kind of unnecessarily, right before rosters expanded. Terry Ryan's quote was, "I'm not concerned about options with Byron Buxton." Well, this would be his second option season, which means next year would be his final option season. So it is something to, especially when you look back and you look at a guy like Torrey Hunter, I believe he was in his mid-20s when he finally figured it out, yeah. up and down, gets called up in 99 for a cup of coffee, 2000. He wasn't really a player that clicked until 2000. It took him like three years of a kind of up and down, sure. and then he really became a player in his mid-20s. Well, what if Byron Buxton needs until he's 24 years old, yeah. which isn't that uncommon, right. to really fulfill his potential and destiny? Well, all of us in this town, fans especially, would have been completely impatient, written him off by that point. And if if it strings out until he's 24, he'd be out of options by that point, too. Man. So I, 
I just think so much pressure is on 20, 21, 22-year-olds now that get followed all the way up from A ball right. to high A. That's the difference to between Torrey Hunter and Byron Buxton. Nobody really, you kind of, oh, if you're a hardcore fan in the mid-90s, oh, they drafted a guy named Torrey Hunter in 93, whatever. Okay. Oh, I saw him in spring training, but he wasn't a mainstream name until he got called up for the first time. Buxton, when he gets called up, gets a standing ovation when he yeah. comes to the play because people have been following him for two or three years. You're the savior. It's not fair. So while I criticize him for not being able to hit a slider, I also, on the other side of that, know that maybe it'll be a year or two until he fully knows how to handle that pitch. Yeah. Can we be patient and take deep breaths and let this thing play out if it's a long-term mm -hmm. figuring out process at the plate for him? It's going to be a slow cook, I think. Uh, it's interesting that the spring after he was drafted, he's one of the biggest autograph demands in 2013 as a, what was he, 19 at the time? That's pressure. Uh, there's a lot that's changed. Now, I will say one other difference between Torrey Hunter and Byron Buxton is that Buxton is universally regarded as more talented. Let's fast forward a little bit. This will sound crazy right now and won't in 10 years. Or it, depending on how your thought processes work, it won't sound crazy now. But I think a lot of people, having seen him this first week of the season, will think this next statement is ridiculous. If the Twins find a way to keep Byron Buxton long-term and he retires a twin, let's say his whole career is in a Twins uniform, he will be a better twin than Torrey Hunter was. He will have contributed more to the Twins organization than Torrey Hunter did. Right now, that seems preposterous given what we've seen from him at the plate. Um, he's better in center field already, I think. I mean, Torrey Hunter was flashy, and he robbed home runs sometimes. So for the first few years of Torrey's career, he was legit the best defensive yep. center fielder in the game. But though. was he nine gold gloves great in center field? I don't think so. I think he gold won, gloves are reputation. I think on. he won some gold gloves on reputation. And now, keep in mind, Torrey Hunter was a star before I was covering sports. So, like, my my perception might be a little skewed on this. I might... I might have some sort of hindsight bias. I mean, he was an incredible defensive player from, mm -hmm. like, 2001 until probably 2009, 2010. See, and so I was I was 10 years old when that run started. So, like, I, mean, I, I don't have you, a good— I can give you other Twins outfielders to crap on instead of Torrey. Like, no. you can crap on Butch Husky or someone. Well, but to say Byron Buxton will be better than Butch Husky is <laughs> not going out on much of a limb even Why for me. You, could you crap on Rich Becker for a while here? And Brian Buchanan. Uh, he'll be better than Brian Raby. <laughs> I don't think— that uh, and the point of the point of this is not to rip on Tory Hunter. I think Tory Hunter, you know, was a deserved Twins Hall of Famer. I think there will be a conversation one day. Uh, should forty eight be hanging in the rafters? I think that's a very valid conversation yeah, to I have. Hear, I know where you're going. I hear you. But I think that defensively, both from the arm, from the speed, and then offensively too, not only in production but projection, how good he could be. Just scouts would agree that Byron Buxton has more potential upside than Torrey Hunter. The difference is we know Torrey Hunter's floor, and the floor that we've seen so far on Byron Buxton is not desirable by Actually, any means. Here's the that's an interesting comparison because the flaw that Torrey Hunter had up until the end of his career, but he he got better at it throughout the the course of his career. He couldn't hit the same pitch, couldn't lay off the same pitch. Mm -hmm. Breaking ball, two strikes, breaking ball. Right on the outside edge, you start that pitch, it fades away, catcher has to block it, and you swing and miss. Catcher throws down to first base to complete the out. That was Torrey Hunter until he was 40 years old, but a lot more when he was 23, 4, totally. 5, 6, 7. And that's what Byron Buxton's doing. Actually, that's what impresses me most about Max Kepler. And I've only seen him now in sort of some – I've seen him a little bit just in spring training settings 
um, at the end of the season, a couple at-bats here and there, and then the one at-bat over the weekend against Kansas City, he's laying off pitches that young hitters who aren't used to major league pitching should at least be flinching at, and he's yeah. taking those pitches. He falls behind 0-2, works the count, draws a walk, doesn't strike out in the minor leagues like Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano did. I don't know if he jump-starts your offense, but he's on the roster right now for the next couple weeks. I kind of want Max Kepler to get some regular playing time over the next 10 games, however long he's up here. His hit tool is ahead of Buxton's right now. Personally, from just an aesthetics, like just watching baseball, like I I write about this in my columns sometimes. Aesthetically, I like aggressive base running. I like someone... um, hit a ball to the left fielder, and the left fielder has to turn over his shoulder to get it back into second base, but you're fast, and you got that good jump and read, and you take second base. I, I like watching that. Um, I like first to third. I like second to home. Um, it's not always a smart gamble. It's not always a percentage play, but just aesthetically. So I'm painting the scene here. I like that sort of stuff. Aesthetically, I already like Max Kepler at the plate more than I like Eddie Rosario. I don't like Eddie Rosario's approach. Now, I've had people with the Twins tell me that, all right, is it concerning that he strikes out significantly more often than he walks and that he thinks he can hit every pitch in the world? Even if it tunnels beneath home plate, he thinks he's going to hit that pitch into the outfield? Yes, that's concerning. But the Twins say he will develop into a better hitter. He's smarter than this. He's not always going to expand the strike zone, to which I say... hands, too. Exactly. And my, my point on Rosario... lotion on them. I mean, like, he doesn't have scaly hands. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's constantly moisturized. Hand, yeah. He doesn't even need <laughs> moisturizer. His hands are so quick, and I wrote this in the Max Kepler column that I published at 1500ESPN.com the other day. Max Ke- or, uh, excuse me, Eddie Rosario right now is a hitter with a poor approach at the plate, a poor understanding of what he's trying to do with hands that are so good that it doesn't matter, he makes up for it. His rookie season, impressive. I know his on-base percentage wasn't even 300, but I was impressed with Eddie Rosario's rookie season. I think he's got a long ways to go in terms of refining his understanding of the strike zone, refining his understanding of what he's trying to do there. Get to a 2-1 count for once in a while. You'll get an easier pitch to hit. Don't swing at a fastball at your eyes and swing through it and walk back to the dugout strike three and think, ah, no big deal, I'll hit that one out next time. No, you probably won't. Percentage-wise, you're really endangering yourself by swinging at that pitch so often. You're opening yourself up to more strikeouts, um, and the name of the game is to avoid outs. Rosario's not good at that right now. Kepler is. I'm not saying Kepler's a better hitter right now, although I think it's possible that he would be, but I, I already like Max Kepler aesthetically, more at the plate than I like Byron Buxton and than I like Eddie Rosario. If I'm the Twins, I'm giving him a look these next two weeks while Danny Santana's on the shelf to try and see, hey, does he have some staying power in the lineup even when Santana's healthy? I think there's a percentage chance that he does have that. I think you could pretty safely give some of Byron Buxton and Byung-Ho Parks at bats over the next couple weeks to Max Kepler. And? Who else, you, who else do you want to see more in the lineup? I'm puzzled that oh, we haven't uh, seen Arcia. I'm puzzled we haven't seen more Arcia yet. You're looking to jumpstart your offense. Arcia tears it up against righties. Go ahead and insert him at DH. Go ahead and insert him in left field and slide Eddie Rosario over to center. Bench Byron Buxton. I'm not trying to be overreactionary because the Twins have lost a week's worth of games, and I'm not one of the people that says you got to shake it up just to make a change. In fact, I don't really like that in baseball. I think it's kind of dumb if you have what you perceive to be your best lineup, and then a week later you are reactionarily panicking and changing that just because, well, it might be our best, but it's not working right now. I think you're supposed to stay the course. I think you're 
your best outcomes come from putting your best lineup forward uh, on the field as often as you possibly can. But with that being said, I think that there's a percentage chance that Max Kepler and Oswaldo Arcia, one or both of them, getting a little bit more exposure and more plate appearances and even more defensive innings could potentially help the Twins break out of this funk just because that might be a better lineup than what they're going with right now. All right, I have two questions for you, one regarding Oswaldo Arcia and uh, the lack of a bat so far, and another one regarding Miguel Sano. But first, a couple house-cleaning items. Number one, thank you to the folks at the newsroom here, downtown Minneapolis. That's where we're recording the podcast today. We like to bounce around sometimes, and uh, this is one of our favorite spots to hang out in. Number two, if you are a regular listener to the podcast, thank you. Please continue to spread the word to your friends. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on iTunes. A lot of five-star reviews in all caps. We'd like to keep that trend going. A lot of exclamation points. There was one episode that we asked for, like, 19 exclamation points, and thank you to the listener who did that. Yes. I laughed. I was like, I get that inside joke, and that is funny. I appreciated that. Yeah, we are uh, hopefully one of your top five favorite twins podcasts by now after doing this for about a year. So we're hoping to continue to climb the rankings in your, uh, in your podcast twins world. But my questions here to you on uh, Oswaldo Arcia and Miguel Sano. I'll start with Arcia. Other than, hey, we invested a few million dollars into Byung-Ho Park and want to give him a chance, why is it so widely assumed that Park is a better hitter than Oswaldo Arcia? Good question. I think it's because we've seen more of the flaws from Arcia. I think the Twins will talk about this, too. In AAA Rochester last year, despite the fact that he was hitting home runs, he was really hot, and I think it was like around first week of June, I'll say, first two weeks of June, he hit like 10 home runs. And it was, okay, this guy might have some holes in his swings, but but come on, how, can this guy really not help your lineup right now? Well, turns out the Twins may have been right in that instance because by the end of the year, when all was said and done, Oswaldo Arcia hit 199 in basically a full year of AAA. And the International League was good at pitching, but it wasn't that good. Sure. Uh, that's a huge concerning thing. So I think that the idea is, well, we know what Arcia's warts are, and he's 24, and he still has things to figure out. We don't know what Park's warts are. We have guesses. We think we might see them, but let's give Park a, a chance. I few of them after the first seven Yeah, I think, I think we're getting a better idea of that now. Um, and it could be, hey, it could be a slump for Byung-Ho Park. He might be a much better hitter than what he's shown, and it just hasn't started out well for him. And then I do think there is something to the psychological component, not only on an individual basis, but on a team basis. Hey, we're struggling right now. There's a guy on second base and two outs. I better drive him in. i got to hit a double. Well, if you're trying to hit a double rather than avoid an out, your process, I think, will tend to lend itself be, to, to be more strikeout-prone, um, more all or nothing than just this team should be good enough to just pass the baton. You should be, if you're Miguel Sano, all right, the bases are loaded, but it's okay to take a walk. Or, um, hey, there are two outs and we got men on base and I should be the guy. I'm, I'm the man in this offense. It's okay to just avoid an out. If you need to go the other way and hit a single, I'm not one of the guys that says you you get out of slumps by going the other way because that's just become a baseball cliche that is not really rooted in reality or truth. It's just fun to say, and it's an easy story to tell yourself. But I do think that there's something to be said about this collective pressure that the Twins are clearly putting on themselves now. If Talking to them after the game in the clubhouse after Monday's home opener, it's very clear 
the offense specifically knows it's not doing its job right now and feels like it needs to rise to the occasion. So whether that's Park, whether that's Sano, whether that's Brian Dozier, Trevor Plouffe, or Byron Buxton, or Eddie Rosario, I think that there is this sort of negative effect of not having won a game so far, of being 5-for-55 with runners in scoring position. So that's a long way of answering the question that I'd like to see Arcia more. I'm with you, especially against a right-handed pitcher. Arcia should be in the lineup. Mm-hmm. But Byung-Ho Park might not be as bad as we've seen in this first week, and I think the Twins are sort of trying to play the patient hand. I'll be really curious to see what they do on Wednesday with some of their lineup decisions. Well, nothing in the first week of the Major League Baseball season is ever as good or as bad as it seems for the most part, unless it's the Cubs who are 6-1, and one, and they are every bit as good as I think um, they've looked the first week. Your guy Jeff Passan picked them to win the World Series. Are you in his boat with that? I picked the Cubs to win the World Series All before right. the year as well. We go. I'm on All the right. record on 1500 ESPN. Yeah. Very good. Um, and I've second? also been a longtime Cub fan on the side, too. My grandma... Is from just outside Chicago. She died 15 years ago, but we used to go to Cubs games when I was a kid. So I just want to see what Wrigleyville looks like yeah. when they win a World Series for the first time since 1908. Kind of cool. You had a second question there for me, Phil? Yeah, Miguel Sano. This John Hirschbeck thing, I talked your ear off about this in the press box yesterday. And on your radio show before that. Yes. Don't forget that you spent 45 minutes and I had to talk you off of this ledge. It's No, I, I'm... You, you, I'm going to jump off. Yeah, of the I was, yeah, no, yeah, don't, you can't talk me off this ledge. <laughs> it's more like I pushed you off the What ledge. I don't understand is I, I get that if you're a hitter within the parameters of today's game, you're subject to emotional and egotistical bias of umpires because everyone's human, and those guys own their own strike zones despite having technology that shows you what the strike zone should be. And so they – Their egos are protecting their strike zones like they would 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so if you question their strike zone, they're going to get mad at you. Um, I thought it was a classic example on Sunday of umpire's ego raging out of control with John Hirschbeck. Not only did you get a key call wrong on a strike three in a spot where the game is close, you have a struggling team and a struggling hitter just just looking for something to go their way. And Sano takes a pitch six to eight inches off the outside corner. Which, by the way, MLB.com's pitch FX graph will show you right as the pitch is thrown. The Mm. only people who don't have access are the players on the field and the umpire. We all know how that works. When replay is available to everyone else, eventually replay becomes available to the umpires and the people on the field. There is a bit of dramatic irony there that we all know it's a strike or a ball right away, and John Hirschbeck is left to guess. Yeah, and I'm sure he found out later on if they do reports or whatever, if his manager sends him a report. So why is it? that an umpire can get a call wrong, so the player gets screwed on the call, expresses displeasure, and then the player gets kicked out of the game. So the player is right, and the player leaves the game because he's right and he's protesting the fact that the umpire is wrong. It's such a weird... And so I love Buster Olney, but Buster Olney kind of adds gas to the to the fire when he tweets out, something, I'm paraphrasing, Miguel Sano... You're going to get a reputation for being bad amongst umpires. <clears throat> it's going to cost you at the plate. Why is that the conversation? Mm-hmm. To me, the conversation is how can we make it so that these calls aren't so egregiously wrong? And when they are, egotistical umpire doesn't go rogue, uh, rogue or Rambo and throw a guy out of the game. So I understand you can't just – you have to treat people with respect if you're a player. and You, mm-hmm. you can't just get into a guy's face for 30 seconds without them re- uh, reacting, but – I feel like umpires should almost be like police officers and that you're expected to de-escalate 
before you rip off your mask and start MFing the hitter, yeah. who, by the way, was right. Right. It annoyed me so much to watch that whole sequence go down on Sunday. couple thoughts. Uh, first is that your two questions statement was a little misleading because the first oh. was a question. No, my question. The second was a rhetorical yeah. statement and That's sort yeah. of a venting session. That's it was, a good point. I hope that was therapeutic for you, my, Phil. It was. Yes. You can get off my couch now. My question to you was, you talked to Miguel Sano in the clubhouse mm -hmm. 24 hours after that game. What did he tell you? What did you learn? He knows that he should not have said what he said back to Hirschbeck, that you can't argue balls and strikes. That's part of it. But let me let me tell you another story of talking to another player, which I think is actually lends more insight to this discussion, which I have a problem with, but is sort of just accepted in the realm of, well, baseball is baseball. I said, uh, you know, someone had brought up the idea that, uh, and I won't name the player just to sort of protect this this conversation, um, but it is one of Miguel Sano's teammates. I said, well, the notion was brought up that, you know, Sano might have been carrying a week's worth of frustration, not only for himself at the plate. I think it was his first 22 plate appearances he'd struck out 11 times. Like, you're just going to be mad. Not only that, he also feels pressure to carry the team on his shoulders because he has the potential to be this team's best hitter mm -hmm. right now at age 23. Is it possible that he was speaking for the entire team there? Because don't forget, Eddie Rosario got rung up in the first inning on a bad call in that game, too. And Rosario said something, but didn't really go to bat for himself, so to speak. He didn't really throw down with Hirschback or anything. Yeah. Is it possible Sano was just trying to kind of rally the troops, and he was about to be replaced for a defensive replacement in Max Kepler anyways, yeah. and no big deal. And the player said, Ab. There might have been something to that. And Sano denies that. Sano, by the way, when I asked him, said, like, no, that was just he said something to me, and I responded, and I shouldn't have, and he tossed me out of the game. By the way, uh, Hirschbeck's words probably started with an F and were no longer than four four letters, so uh, he said that at least twice. I can see Robbie Alomar's point of view from 20 years ago after watching the antics of John Hirschbeck. I know there's more to that story than uh, than I just made it, but anyways, continue. The player in question was asked then, uh, you know, is, see any similarities? Hey, you remember when that other guy last year got mad at an umpire's call and he stripped down to his undergarments and threw his jersey on the field and threw a tantrum as he walked off after having been ejected and getting his manager ejected too? That was sort of viewed as a rallying point for this team and everyone sort of latched onto the hashtag narrative that Torrey Hunter's a leader because when he gets thrown out, he makes his point heard. The player said, yeah, but you're talking about one of the greatest twins ever who had, by the way, 18 years under his belt in the big leagues. And there are a couple other reporters in the realm, uh, in, in the area when that question was asked and kind of chuckled it off as, yeah, that was just Tory being Tory. Tory taking off his uniform and throwing a tantrum and disgracing baseball. You know, if you want to put it in those terms, I'm not saying those are my words, but... Um, when Tory does it, it's, ah, yeah, but he's a veteran, he's got cred, and he can do that. Miguel Sano does it, he's a punk. I don't get why there's such a strict dichotomy drawn between those two actions. I think they're pretty similar. The player dismissed it and said, no, that's not how baseball works. I agree with him, but I question why it works that way. I don't get why Tory Henner's 18 years in the league mean he can act any way he wants to to umpires, and Miguel Sano is going to get a quote-unquote reputation. Yeah. See, I don't understand why there needs to be a difference between a 38-year-old player and a 22-year-old player when it comes to something that should be uniform. Mm -hmm. In football, 
It's not like if Calvin Johnson catches a pass along the sideline and he tiptoes in and Cordero Patterson catches, well, that's a bad example, and Stefan Diggs catches the, <laughs> catches the same pass. Wow. And they are both both have their left foot half out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Well, Diggs, sorry, bro, but you're, you're 23 years old, man. Uh, you're not going to get that call. So that's, but Calvin Johnson's a veteran, and so he's going to get that call. That's no, the they're, equivalent. They're out of bounds. Right. That's the equivalent for the ball strike conversation, which I think veterans do get the strike zone. I think Joe Maurer, at the height of his Joe Maurerness, was getting the outside corner. He was getting that call because the umpire, in his mind, subconsciously thought, well, hold on a second. Joe Maurer doesn't take two strike pitches in the strike zone, so therefore that must have been a ball. Veterans do get those calls in baseball. I, I, I haven't seen studies that back that up. Just anecdotally, it happens. Pitchers talk about it. Batters talk about it. No one wants to pin it on the umpires because they have a hard job, but subconsciously that's part of the equation. To draw a better parallel to what we're talking about here, it would be like uh, – uh, Steven Jackson scores a touchdown, and because he's been in the end, or, and been in the league for a long time, he gets to do the dirty bird in the end zone and get away with it. Whereas Jarek McKinnon could not celebrate in the same form and fashion. That's the umpire argument conversation. I think neither of those things exist in the NFL. Whereas in baseball, the veteranness does get yeah. you the calls. Well, I actually think. I don't mind as much that there's leeway with someone you know who's been around more in, in the argument sense. I really, I, I do think in society, experience opens more doors for you, and experience gives you more credibility and more leeway to do certain things. And I'm all for that. I think there should be dues paid in certain areas. I don't think you should be handed things necessarily. And I'm a, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a fringe millennial at 30, so it's, I mean, I, I've, I'm probably, of the people around my same age, I'm probably taking the minority stance on this. But when it comes to the rules of a game, a strike zone, the baseline in the NBA or tennis or a first down line or an out-of-bounds marker in the NFL, I don't want those to be subjective. And umpires like John Hirschbeck are making those subjective. And it, to me, and, and if, if we're reading Miguel Sano's account correctly and if, if he's being honest and if you could kind of read the lips of John Hirschbeck, John Hirschbeck was doing two things. He wasn't giving Sano the leeway to argue because he's a new player, which I'm a little more okay with that because who, who, who the bleep are you, dude? I, I've been an umpire. Like, treat me with some respect if right. you're going to argue. Right. I can get that side of it a little bit more. Sure. What I don't appreciate is you're not going to get that call. Who the hell are you think you can get that call? Sure. Whoa, 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 no. It doesn't matter who I am. I'm playing Major League Baseball. You are a Major League Baseball police officer sent here to enforce these rules and these guidelines, including that strike zone. So if you want to call a ball or a strike based on where you think it is because there is no outline box right now that there will be in, like, five years, and if you want to flip coins, that's your prerogative because it's not humanly possible to get all those calls right. But if you're going to insinuate that I don't get that call because I'm not 30 years old, screw you. Yeah, That's the way I think about it. I am going to paint you in a little bit of a box here and then run. I agree with everything you just said about the subjectivity not really having a big place in sports. Like in the NBA, superstars will get calls, and that makes sense. In the NBA, you're determining contact and how much contact. Did that really knock him over? It's super hard. Refereeing and umpiring are two, one, thankless, but two, damn near impossible tasks. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying umpiring is easy and these guys are just ill-equipped. No, it's it's a very hard job, and no human is equipped. 
Um, where I'll paint you in a box is that you talk about not wanting – you want objectivity in the calls. You want, is this a strike or a ball objectively, and your personal opinion is – a computer should call that because there's no subjectivity, right? And it's and, impossible for a human to get more than, like, 92% of those correct. Yeah. and They're that, flipping coins on the other end. And that shouldn't determine the outcome of games. We're together on that one. But aren't you the same person who has these theories in sports that at the end of games the players should determine it and that calls should be relaxed? Uh, well, yes, but that's in, that's in sports. that's in sports where the calls are subjective. Right. So I'm talking – I'm not talking about – if a player stepped out of bounds in an NFL game, that you know what, let the play. No, he stepped out of bounds. Right now, if there's physical contact in the NBA on a foul late in the game or something, and it's borderline, I'm letting them play. But if a player in the NFL doesn't get to the goal line when he's yeah. trying to score a touchdown, <laughs> oh, but he's 32 years old and it's Steven Jackson or Adrian Peterson, so I'm going to let that one go. But oh, sorry, Jarek McKinnon, you don't get that touchdown. I want. When it comes to the human element, I want the players to be the human element. I don't want John Hirschbeck to be the player element. So you tried to put me in a box there, but I think I took the box off and threw it off your head. So you mean like when Michael Jordan pushes off of Byron Russell at the end of a critically important That's contact. Game? It's subjective. Totally. Contact is subjective. But would that call be called in the first quarter of a game? Maybe. But it's at the end of a game... And so let the players play. Yeah, I'm all for it. So in, I'm trying to think of a baseball example because most things in baseball are Here's a perfect slide example. play at second base or something. Jack Morris is pitching in the greatest game in baseball history, Game 7 of the 1991 World Series, and that strike zone gets difficult to tell. Now, I haven't. No, it doesn't. Exactly. It exactly sh- my point. It shouldn't. Exactly my point, but. Um, I know if, in 1991 they didn't exactly have the technology. but Right, we do now, but my point is that, like, all right, uh, you know, if if Mike Maddox is pitching or uh, Greg Maddox, Greg Maddox, I don't know Mike why Mike Maddox would be probably he'd wouldn't be, be pitching too. But it's probably not in Game Seven of the World <laughs> Series. They're probably not as critical of a if moment. Billy Ripken's hitting, right? 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 If uh, what's Jose Canseco's brother's day? I don't know, I'm brother. Afraid I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. All right, Tom Glavin is uh, spinning a gem, and it's the ninth inning. And let's forget the Jack Morris example because that probably was a strike that called third strike at the end of the game. My only point is that like a lot of people who share your worldview of let the players play and that sports should continue uh, in the in the fourth quarter, swallow your whistle. I hate that phrase. If you weren't going to swallow it in the first quarter, don't swallow it in the fourth quarter. I want games called the same uniformly all the way through, and that's to my point here, too. In baseball, it's balls and strikes because balls and strikes, while they should be objective, are objective. And if there's a pitch just off the plate and it's with two strikes in the ninth inning of a very uh, an emotional game because everyone gets charged up emotionally. You're an umpire. You are not removed from the emotion of the moment. That's a critical call in your life, too. Here's a perfect example. Armando Galarraga. Oh, yeah. Like, that's, Jim Joyce. Jim Joyce is universally considered one of the best umpires in baseball, and his legacy, my kids will know who Jim Joyce is because they're going to be baseball fans. I'm going to make them be baseball fans. They're going to know who Jim Joyce is because they screwed up. He screwed up Armando Galarraga's perfect game. But Jim Joyce, I'm glad you brought him up because Jim Joyce is the poster child for why an electronic strike zone, like it or not, will have to be implemented. Jim Joyce was the only person in America who didn't know that that call was blown within five seconds after it was made. Sure. And rather than giving him access to the same replays that we saw from five angles Mm -hmm. five seconds after that play happened, Mm -hmm. 
everyone in America knows and everyone in the clubhouse who's watching that game. If you're in the dugout, you can go peek your head in the clubhouse and, oh, no. Now you can have an iPad oh, out there no. and figure yeah. it out. <laughs> Everybody knows. And yeah. at that time, instant replay was not available to the umpires. And so but. he's left to rot and get death threats or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever was sent to him. That same thing will absolutely happen in Game 6 decisive World Series situation. Some umpire is going to get too caught up in the moment or his ego is going to get involved and he's going to call a pitch that's eight inches off the edge, a strike, or a pitch is going to cross over. Some curveball is going to cross over right at the knees, above the knees, but the catcher's going to blow the frame, and the umpire's not going to give him credit because it was a bad frame job or something. Mm-hmm. And everyone in America is going to see, oh, no, that pitch was not close. Mm-hmm. The next pitch is going to be the decisive pitch the other way or something. Yeah, absolutely. Only then will this be force-fed through to to be something that sure. um, is available for every game and every pitch. The neighborhood play, collisions at home play, collisions at any base, there's going to be elements that baseball has intentionally left subjective, uh, placing runners after a delayed dead ball or something. These They're difficult calls to make. Mm-hmm. Uh I don't know where I land on this. I think that there's just it's a it's a difficult conversation. The umpiring slash do you keep the human element? Do you do you want play do you want do you intentionally want to invite bad calls? Because that's what you're doing when you say I want the human element of umpiring. I want that part to continue to exist. What you're saying is I want a certain percentage of things to be wrong. I just want that. I crave that. Well, I personally don't. I, I, I want everything to be right. I want the team playing to figure out which was the better team mm-hmm. on that day. I mean, there's an inherent amount of randomness to it, and, you know, the best team's not going to win every single time. It matters who plays better that day, and it, luck has to be on your side. I get that. But I just don't think that um, that we should be okay, that we should accept this uh, subjectivity to continue to drive and decide games. It's decided games in the past, and it will in the foreseeable future until baseball makes some changes. But um, I don't get how you can be hypocritical by saying that I want all subjectivity removed, but in the fourth quarter when there are subjective calls, I want those to go the way of letting Those are always going to be subjective, and that comparison is very much apples to oranges, if not like apples to a log. It's just I don't even think it's in the fruit family. I also want the record to state that our inability to compare apples and oranges is a human limitation. <laughs> we once decided, once long ago, that apples cannot be compared with oranges, and I will not stand for that. Actually, I think it's if, a bunch of malarkey. If I'm being honest, the real reason why I want an electronic strike zone is so that catchers no longer have to trick umpires. No longer will this <laughs> skill set of tricking an umpire into making the wrong call be applauded. Yep. Could you imagine in other sports, if it were applauded, when a cornerback came out and talked openly and they practiced openly, here's how you trick um, trick the the linesman. Or sure. I know they do work on some of that stuff, grabbing a receiver's hand. Here's but, how Bo Ryan works over the sideline officials yeah. so that one day in the future, <laughs> oh, come on, Mike, that was terrible. 
you'll get that call one day because he rode Mike for long enough. I'm all for an era sometime in the near future where catchers no longer have to frame and trick umpires. They can sit back there with a cocktail and just let the ball bounce <laughs> off their, their yeah. mask. And they can just sit behind a board if they want to and let the ball hit the strike zone. Just go through the electronics. When there's a guy on base, you'll have to actually catch the ball. But just lay back there and let the ball hit off of your chest protector. It's like the dads that are helping out so- uh, fast-pitch softball, but their knees just aren't what they used to be. Their backs are all shot, and they're sitting on the overturned bucket, yes. just kind of chilling there with a chilled minty cocktail in his hand. Catch, catch a ball. Drop it in the bucket. Catch a ball. Drop it in the bucket. That's exactly what baseball is going to become. Sip your cocktail. Catch the ball. Put it in the bucket. <laughs> sip your cocktail. I, I can see catchers. And then it's just an offensive threat. There's a way to introduce more offense to the game just by a simple extension of the fact that you no longer need this guy to squat behind the plate for a thousand more innings. He can just be a hitting machine. Both the uh, retired Molinas can come back, too. Yeah. Benji and Jose. <laughs> Although Jose is a good pitch framer. So, Benji, come on back, dude. Just sit on a white turned over bucket and let the ball bounce off your chest personal story that maybe i'll i've told you maybe i'll tell you again sometime but i was a pitcher in the city ball league days when i I was a bad baseball player but a smart baseball player I, i liked the rules of the game and this kind of thing i just i wasn't very good i was never talented but i had a catcher who's one of my best friends to this day he would frequently catch me and his pitch framing was atrocious and I didn't know this was a thing back then but I knew it cost me calls like intuitively I would throw a ball six inches outside either whether I was trying to go away I was a waste pitch with two strikes or it just up that one slipped lost it and he would routinely catch it six to eight to 12 inches outside and pull it back to his sternum (laughs) center it in the strike zone as if to say are you sure, umpire? That one was kind of close. Maybe think twice about it. Pulls it to the outside edge instead. <laughs> to the point that every time I would hit the corner with a two-strike pitch, the uh, the umpires subconsciously were thinking, well, that kid just pulled the ball back there. there. There's no way that pitch actually hit the black. He's probably just pulling it in from 12 inches outside. I don't know how many strikes that cost me throughout my career, but I'm not kidding. That cost me strikeouts throughout my uncelebrated, embarrassing, pathetic minor you know, little league career that to this day I clearly still haven't forgotten right, about it. Pitch framing made me a worse pitcher. But be totally honest, how many times did you actually get a ball to go past the hitter's bat into the catcher's Once or twice. <laughs> Stay tuned for 60-second AP News headlines.